Okay, so a couple of you were here yesterday, so I'm afraid some of the, um, some of the background to this is, is the same as the talk that was part one of this project. Um, I'm really, I'm starting out, this is a very new thing for me, I've, like Julian says, I've always worked on the ethics of war, and I kind of noticed as I was working on the ethics of war how these notions of risk kept coming up, um, especially when you're thinking about self-defence. Probability is kind of written into the very sort of basis of self-defence. Um, whenever you act in justified self-defence, what justifies your act is something that if you're successful never occurs. So what justifies it is the probability that some person will pose some threat to you. Um, and so probabilities are kind of written into the, um, the stuff that I was doing. I never really looked at them in detail. And I've started trying to do so a little bit, and it's going to be a project for the future. And um, this is my sort of first stab at thinking about some of these issues. Um, and what struck me really was that consequentialists have a sort of an, a sort of an inbuilt approach to dealing with probabilities. They've got their decision theory that they can appeal to. You, know, you take your probabilities and the utilities of the outcomes, you multiply the probabilities by the utilities and then sum them um, over the possible states of affairs that can occur. Uh, and so they've got their decision theory already kind of built in and decision theory already works within that framework. But people who have a more kind of deontological approach to ethics, who are more persuaded by the counterexamples to consequentialism, who are invited then to revise the theory rather than to sort of just ignore the counterexamples, don't seem to have a very good way of dealing with probabilities. Um, and these things aren't only important for consequences, and non-consequentialists still have to deal with consequences sometimes, but they're not only important for consequences. Um, so there's plenty of times where you can be uncertain about the character of your action, but it's not a question of being uncertain about the consequences of the action, but you're uncertain of the character of the action, um, and you have to decide what to do given that uncertainty. And in the context of self-defense, in the ethics of war, um, the crucial thing is that you might be uncertain over whether somebody is sufficiently responsible for some sort of unjustified threat that they can be liable to be killed in order to avert that threat. Um, you may well have, in the, in the context of war, it's quite likely that a large number of the people who you're going to intentionally kill are not going to be liable, but you're not going to be able to differentiate among those and the other people who are liable. So you've got to work out what to do in these conditions of uncertainty. And if you have some, one type of view, which a kind of bonkers view, but one type of view that some people have, that would say, look, you're absolutely prohibited from intentionally killing a non-liable person, someone who retains their right to life, then if you're in a situation where there's some probability that your action might be the killing of a non-liable person, then you're going to be prescribed from doing that, even if it's a small probability. So we've got to work out how we're going to deal with these sort of uncertainties in the context, the broad context of a non-consequentialist approach to ethics. Um, and there are two broad families of approach that are typically taken when this is discussed. Um, and one of them... I think is still the most current in the ethics of permissible harm, um, but it is pretty much sort of universally deprecated elsewhere, which is the idea that what you ought to do under conditions of uncertainty is the thing that is most likely to be what you objectively ought to do. Right? So you ought to just consider all of your options, try and work out the one that's most likely to be objectively right, and do that one. Um, now, this approach is pretty easy to um, undermine with counterexamples. Um, Derek Parfitt's Mineshaft's example is one, Frank Jackson's Doctors and Pills, Doctors Two Pill case, the uh, case from Donald Regan. Um, these ones all basically show that when you take this approach where you're considering is only the which is the most which option is the most likely to be objectively right, what you're ignoring is the downside risks, the possibility that if this option isn't the one that's objectively right, there might be some terrible consequences that follow from that, um, and that seems to sort of push us very much towards even if we're deontologists, something like a maximised expected objective value framework. 
Now maybe we wouldn't choose maximization as the operator there, um, but the expected value part seems to be uh, a necessary way of going about these things. You've got to think, look, in the self-defense case, there's like a 0.9 probability that this person is responsible. And if he's responsible, then um, this isn't an act of killing a non-liable person. But if that 0.1 probability is the case, then you have to factor that in as well. And you also have to consider the other implications of the action. So if we're going to adopt this maximize expected objective value framework within a broadly deontological picture of morality, um, how are we going to do it? How is it going to be sensitive to the sort of considerations that deontologists typically think about? And so what I'm going to do in this talk is focus on one particular type of case, a kind of crazy, wacky case um, that is intended to model some of the problems that arise when you're using expected objective value um, within this non-consequentialist framework. And really what I'm going to try and do is by using this example, I'm going to try and tease out ways in which the, the deontologist, or the non-consequentialist, um, might incorporate sort of typical characteristic deontological intuitions into the formulation of the, the idea of expected objective value. Um, I'm going to talk briefly at the beginning just about some structural points that this issue raises, and then I'm going to present the case and I'm going to go through a series of um, points that it raises. Okay, so the structural considerations just to start with. So a non-consequentialist might start out by pretty much feeling allergic to the idea of maximizing expected objective moral value. Right? It sounds very consequentialist to start with, um, and it sounds like the, the, sort of the axiology sounds non-consequentialist. It sounds like there are going to be structural problems with this approach that are going to necessitate pursuing some alternative approach. Uh, I think that's going to be a worry. Um, I'm not really sure yet what the alternative could be and how to articulate that worry fully. But I think there's one way to rebut it, although it does have a cost. Um, so the way to rebut it is to say that, look, we can deploy here the distinction that has often been drawn between a criterion of right and a decision procedure, and we can say that even if you're a dyed-in-the-wall deontologist about the criterion of right, what we're looking for here is a decision procedure that will enable us to reason on the basis of that under conditions of uncertainty. The decision procedure doesn't constitute the account of the criterion of right. It's just the best way of deploying the, the criterion of right in the context of uncertainty. Um, so that's a, I think that's a reasonable solution to that particular structural worry, but it does raise an interesting dialectical point, which is that um, the consequentialist, we're familiar with this move from consequentialists who say, well, yeah, consequentialism provides us with the criterion of right, and deontology provides us with the decision procedure that you should adopt in ordinary cases. But then when you add in probabilities, you have to move to something that looks, again, like a consequentialist thing. Um, and it means that there's a dialectical disadvantage for the deontologist who might have criticised the consequentialists in the past for making that, uh, that distinction and accused it of being ad hoc. But I think it is, in this case, it kind of works okay, and it is good enough to motivate thinking about how we can think about expected objective value from within a non-consequentialist framework. Um, and when I say non-consequentialist, I should just specify that I'm not really thinking in any kind of grand terms. I'm thinking of the sort of people who have intuitions that are typically used against consequentialists in, in, in the sort of standard counterexamples who believe in rights. Um, I'm not going to make any grand claims about what the essence of a non-consequentialist theory is. I'm just going to try and identify deontological-ish intuitions. Um, and it's worth saying before I go into the case as well that what I'm really trying to do here is to model how a non-consequentialist approach to um, uncertainty can incorporate plausible non-consequentialist intuitions. So it's not... It's crucial for me whether, I mean, some of you will, some of you won't share the intuitions that I describe. 
But all I want is that they should be sufficiently plausible that we think, well, this is going to be something that a non-consequentialist is going to need to take into account and is going to need to justify. Um, so the intuitions themselves are only going to be a sort of start of the conversation. I'm then going to think about how exactly they work. Okay, so onto the specific problem that I'm going to engage with in the talk. Um, it is a trolley problem, and a uh, brief caveat about trolley problems, um, they definitely get much more stick than they deserve. I think they're particularly useful for dealing with these sort of probabilistic decision-making things, because you can clearly model the specific probabilities that, the, um, that are at stake. So they help to get precise on the specific considerations that I'm looking to get a handle of on in this talk. Uh, but if you are allergic to trolley problems, we could reformulate a lot of this stuff um, using different ideas. So anyone who's seen No Country for Old Men and knows Javier Bardem's character in that, where he tosses a coin before he kills people, you could formulate a similar set of examples around that. Um, someone suggested that I call the paper No Country for Old Trolley Problems. As an alternative, but, uh, so I've got the trolley problems, and we're going to start with those. Okay, so here's the problem. I'm just going to say at the outset that it's been set for you by a villain. Um, it's possible that we can think about whether that in itself makes a particular difference, but for the moment we're just going to assume that there's a, a villain or a demon who has set you this problem. So the trolley or the train is on a track. If the trolley continues down the track without you do anything, doing anything, it will kill whoever's at the end of the track. But it's approaching a junction, and the junction is controlled by a lever which you can pull. When you pull the lever, if the trolley goes down the loop track, it will loop that back to the beginning, and the problem will be um, renewed. You'll face the problem again. If it goes down the stop track, it will stop. The lever that controls which way the trolley goes is probabilistic, um, and it's controlled. By, it's, there's a 0.5 probability that the trolley will go down loop, 0.5 that it will go down stop. The probabilities are objective epistemic probabilities, so that means that I'm not talking about chances, although there could be chances. It's more like the toss of a fair coin. It's that sort of probability. We're going to say, I think for all the talks, we're going to say that um, we're going to put five people at the end of the track, so five people will die if the trolley continues, and we'll put one person on the loop track. <coughs> now, what happens if that person is killed, then the villain will put another person in their place. Okay, and, if, uh, and the villain has a, an infinite supply of potential victims. Okay, so the idea here is that every time you return, um, every time the trolley goes around the loop, if you pull the, trolley, pull the lever and it goes around the loop, every time it returns back to the original position, um, you'll be facing exactly the same choice situation again. So the way in which the, prob the problem is defined by a set of parameters, um, the probability that it will loop if you pull the lever, the probability that it will stop if you pull the lever, the number of people who will die if the trolley goes down loop, and the number of people who will, who will die if the trolley goes down the continue track. Okay, and it's going to be 0.5 probability either way. One person's going to die on loop, five people are going to die on continue. I'm going to start out by... So there's no one on stop? No one on stop. If it goes on stop, you're okay. So I'm going to start out by um, just assuming, without argument, something like the standard deontological arithmetic, according to which it's permissible to cause one death in order to prevent five from occurring. Okay, and I'm not going to argue for that. It's just a sort of, that's, that's the number that always comes up. Everything that I'm going to say works, whatever numbers you think are appropriate in those places. Um, but it's just a, a useful starting point. And in a way, you can think about the whole sort of question that I'm asking as being something like this. So if it's the case that it's permissible to cause one death with certainty to prevent five deaths from occurring with certainty, does that mean that we can infer that it's permissible to cause one expected death in order to avert five expected deaths? Because an, so an expected death in this case is 
probabilities, the various probabilities of possible outcomes multiplied by the number of people who die in those cases. Um, and you can reach one expected death or allowed, one, five allowed expected deaths. You can reach that through an infinite number of possible combinations of probabilities and numbers of death, deaths. So if we could just infer from the sort of standard deontological intuitions that one expected death is equivalent to five expected allowed deaths, then all of those differences would just be completely irrelevant. Right? There would be no combination of those things that would really matter. All that would matter is the headline figure, probability times number of deaths would, would realise the same amount of disvalue. Um, so my, my notion and my hunch is that that is misguided and that the probabilities really do matter and the different combinations of different probabilities and numbers of deaths will make a difference. Uh, but let's start out by just thinking what you would do, how you would work out what you ought to do, given that you're faced with this choice situation at the outset, um, within an expected objective moral value framework. So the first thing that you need to think about is uh, where you can't just consider the expected value of pulling the lever once. right? Because if you pull the lever once, there's a 50% chance that the, the trolley will go around the loop track and come back to the beginning. And then you'll have to make the same decision again. So you have to factor into your account of what you do now the probability that when the trolley comes around, you'll have to make, this, make the decision again. Right? And obviously, if you pull the lever the second time, then the trolley will come around again, and so on. Um, so you need to consider a whole profile of choices that you will take after pulling the lever for the first time. Now, there's different ways you could go about doing that. You could just sort of reflect on what you're most likely to do at those different cases and just factor that into your calculation. Um, but here's the thing. At each, point, at each time point, given the way I've described the case so far, your decision-making or your, the, your, the frame of your decision, the option sets in front of you, are exactly the same. So if you pull the lever the first time, then it would be inconsistent for you to stop pulling the lever at any other time. So if you pull the lever once, you're kind of rationally committing yourself to doing exactly the same thing every time. Now, that's not to say that you would necessarily do what you're rationally committed to do, and that's an important thing to consider. I talked about that a bit yesterday. But we can start out by assuming that since you're going to face the choice situation in the same way each time, you're going to do the same thing. So you need to consider basically two sets, two possible options. One is that you don't pull the lever at all, and the other is that you pull the lever every time the trolley comes back. Now, the one where you pull the, don't pull the lever at all allows five people to die, and we've stipulated a deontological discount rate um, of 20%, so five people is equivalent to one unit of expected disvalue. Um, there may be all sorts of problems with that, but let's, let's just start with that. Um, so then what's the expected value of this, this value of pulling the lever every time the trolley comes back? Okay, that's what we need to work out. So this is where the maths comes in, and it's, um, I guess, uh, I'll have to hope you trust me on it. But here's how you work it out. So the first time the trolley approaches the junction, you pull the lever, and there's a 50% chance that nobody dies. One over two chance that nobody dies. So that's great, but there's also one over two chance that one person dies, and the trolley comes back. Second time you pull the lever, again there's a 50% probability, but it's now 50% of 50%, so it's 1 over 4, that nobody, that only, nobody else dies, so only the one person dies, but also again a quarter probability that it goes back, killing another person on the way. And again, when you pull the lever the third time, there's a 1 over 8 probability that it stops and only two people die, but a 1 over 8 that it goes back. So your expectation of the action is, on the, as on the handout, a half times zero plus a quarter times one plus an eighth times two plus a sixteenth times three plus a thirty-two times four and so on and he has an infinite number of potential victims so this goes on ad infinitum. Um, and as you can see for each case 
if you if you put the um, uh, if you factor out the brackets, you get the nom the nominator is going to increase by one each time, and the denominator is going to increase by a factor of two each time. So the fractions are are getting smaller and smaller and smaller until they're infinitesimally small. Um, and what we have here is a converging a converging series infinite series that converges to one. Okay, and you can show this by making it into a geometrical progression as well. Um, and so this is kind of this started, when I started thinking about this, this just struck me as kind of bizarre, um, that you could countenance at the outset a course of action that would involve killing an infinite number of people in order to save these five people. Now, obviously, the probabilities that you're going to kill an infinite number of people are very, very small, um, but it seemed odd to me that this would be okay, and that um, setting aside the, you know, the very, very unlikely outcome that you kill a very, very large number of people, there's still a fairly high chance that you're going to kill a significant number of people, a significant number more than it would be permissible to kill in order to um, save the, the five if you're certain of, of doing it. So, you know, whatever 16th chance of killing three people, that's not a, negligible, um, not a negligible output. So this got me kind of worrying about whether this expected value framework can really kind of capture the sort of um, ideas and reasons that a deontological theorist is going to want to capture. Um, and so what I'm going to do in the rest of the talk is find ways of incorporating and describing and identifying some of those sort of broadly deontological insights and seeing how that they can be incorporated into the evaluation of this case. I think the main kind of overarching problem that the case raises for me is that given that we're just focusing on expected objective moral value, we don't really care about the locations or the sites of those values. We don't care about who the identities of the people who, bears them, who bear them. And you can see this if you just imagine that the villain was kind of demonically shuffling all the protagonists around um, at every iteration or between iterations. Um, it wouldn't make any difference to the expected values of the case. Right? So whoever, who's in which position doesn't make any difference. Uh, and it seems like a standard sort of deontological view is that these sorts of things do matter uh, and that you can't just sort of treat people in a way that allows for um, just simple marginal interpersonal trade-offs. You can't apply the same sort of decision rule that works for one person to a large number of people. You need to consider the different possible people who might bear these costs. So what I'm going to do um, to kind of draw out some of these intuitions is think about ways of varying the different protagonists within the case and the sort of implications that would follow from that. Um, so I'm going to focus on the beneficiaries, the people at the end of the continue track first. Then I'm going to talk about the victims, um, the people on the loop track. And then I'm going to talk about the agent, the person pulling the lever, and think about ways in which those variations make a difference. Okay, so the first question has to do with the beneficiaries. So here the broad idea that I think is kind of characteristically deontological is to suppose that to treat the people you've already killed along the way to trying to save the people at the end of the line, to treat them as irrelevant to the forward-looking evaluation of your action, as we're assuming that you will in saying that your decision at T1, T2, T3, etc. is exactly the same is to um, treat them as effectively in the same way as economists treat sunk costs. And that there's something, more, there's something intuitively morally problematic about that. If you pull the lever three times, and you've killed three people, and then you're going to choose to pull the lever for the fourth time, there seems to be some sense in which disregarding the people who you've already killed along the way to achieving the objective of saving the five at the end of the line 
um, disrespects them in some important way. It has something, something wrong with it. So the question is, can we articulate this intuition properly? Can we find some sort of justification for it that's going to work? Um, so I'm gonna, my way of sort of thinking about this is to say that we can model this intuition by saying that the weight that we should attach to the interests of the people who are going to save, or the claim of the people that we're going to save at the end of the line, that diminishes as you kill more people in the pursuit of saving them. Uh, this is just one sort of pro-tanto way in which it diminishes. I'll talk about other things as well. Uh, but the idea would be that um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be simply that once you've killed one person in order to save the five, that's the end of the story. Um, but it would be the weight of their claim against you diminishes by some factor. Um, we'd have to model out exactly what the sort of function would be. Um, I think it's likely that it doesn't diminish down to zero, so there's, always a, there's a floor at which um, it can't below, go below, so it's always worth some significant amount to save them. Um, but the original force that it has should diminish as you kill more people in the failed attempt to save them. Uh, and I think that's a way of articulating the sunk cost idea um, that doesn't involve sort of gratuitously implausible implications. Um, so if, if there is anything to the sunk cost idea, it's going to have to imply that there is a function of this kind that has like a sort of percentage discount on the weight that these interests should take and that has a floor underneath it um, so that they can never diminish below, um, below that level. But to say that there's a kind of plausible way to model this sunk cost intuition isn't obviously to justify it. It's just to try and characterise it in a way that is going to avoid intuitive counterexamples. But I think there is something to be said for it. Um, and I think the central idea is that there should be limits on what we can expect others to bear on our behalf. Right? That's a sort of a fundamental non-consequentialist or deontological idea, that you can't simply impose other costs on other people just when that would produce a lower sum of cost overall. Now, that's clearly, I think, um, fine for uh, imposing actual harms, but I think it also applies with probabilities. Like, sure, you can definitely do more aggregation of probabilities than most deontologists think you can do aggregation of actual harms. Um, but there are still constraints on that, and there are limits to what should be allowed to do in order to um, save these people at the expense of the others. Because what you're really doing when you, shift, when you pull the lever is you're redistributing risk away from the five at the end and towards this other group. So if you imagine that you know, the people who are going to be put on the loop track were kind of lined up one by one, all the people who are going to be there, and you think about you making the decision to pull that lever the first time, the idea is that what you're doing when you do that is you're shifting all this risk away from the people who are otherwise going to die towards that line of people over there. You're making them bear the risk instead of these guys. Um, and there should be a limit to how much you can do that. There should be a limit to the degree to which you can do that. Um, because it's unfair to impose on, uh, to make others into, or to treat others as though they were there just for the benefit of the, of the victims, um, of, of the beneficiaries rather. Uh, and I think that those people who are lined up would have some justified complaint against you for just aggregating the probabilities in the way that the expected objective value framework says without this additional sunk cost modifier. So ways to kind of support this idea. Um, the first one I think is if you think that, if you imagine that the people who have control of the lever um, are the actual beneficiaries. Right? So if they were pulling the lever each time, um, so pull it once, pull it twice to try and save themselves, pull it three times to try and save themselves. They've now killed three people in order to try and save themselves. It seems clear to me that you know, there has to come some point at which they think, well, you know, the number of people we've killed along the way to doing this means that at some point we're going to have to stop shifting these costs away from us and towards other people. We've asked other people to bear all the costs that we can expect them to bear. 
Um, this, I think, is particularly clear when you imagine that we're not dealing with death, but we're dealing with pain. So suppose that the trolley is going to inflict temporary but excruciating pain on whoever it hits. Um, and the proportions are the same, and the one person on loop is there as well. But this time the person on loop is the same person each time. So the pain that's going to be inflicted each time is going to go to him. It's going to be, but it's going to be temporary. It's going to pass. So again, I think there it seems clear to me that there would come a point at which it was impermissible for us to keep shifting the costs towards that other person and away from the people at the end of the line. Um, another way of supporting the intuition is to suppose that the people who are at the end of the line are replaced um, after each iteration. And there my feeling about my worry about sunk costs kind of goes away. Right? So what happens now is you pull the lever and the trolley goes down loop and the villain takes away the fiver at the end and puts in a new five. Now from the expected value framework, everything is just the same as it was before. It doesn't make a difference to the calculation of expected value. But I think it does make a difference to the, um, well, to the sort of deontological expected value of the case. Because once you put in new people, then they have these undiminished claims. They haven't had people die in the pursuit of saving them. Um, so we go back to the start and we could, as far as this reason is concerned, we could just keep pulling the lever. Um, Another way of seeing this is if you suppose that the people who are put on loop are drawn from the people who are, would otherwise be on the continue track. So you, each, each iteration, the villain takes one person out of the group at the end of the line, moves him over to loop, and brings in a new stranger um, into, the, um, into the end of the line. Now here, it seems fine to keep pulling the lever because that person who's put on loop Ex ante, he's, he's better off if you pull the lever than if you don't. If you don't pull the lever, then he would be on the continue track and he would get killed. Um, but if you do pull the lever, then he's going to be on the loop track. So he's got a 50% chance of surviving. So he's going to be better off for that. Right? And I think that that in indicates that when the person who's put on loop or is, who's, who's sacrificed for the sake of the others, when he stands to benefit ex ante from this decision, then it's okay to do it. Right? It's kind of like a hypothetical sort of consent. Um, but when he doesn't stand to benefit ex ante, when they're just being sacrificed for the sake of the others, then I think that there are limits to what can be done um, in order to save those beneficiaries. Now, if this sunk cost idea is right, then it's in tension with another plausible thought that people sometimes have about cases like this, which is that we have some additional reason to save the people at the end of the line, the more people we've killed, because you don't want those people who you've killed to have died in vain. That's a familiar idea from the ethics of war and or more like the popular discussion of war. Um, I, don't, I, find, I'm, I find it quite hard to model how exactly that would work um, and what would justify it. I find, so I find it less plausible than the, um, than the sunk costs idea. Uh, but it's also possible that these are both considerations. One that tells against the claim that the beneficiaries have that you keep trying to save them after you've already killed a number of people along the way and one that somewhat increases the claim. Um, there could well be these two competing considerations. Okay, so next I'm going to talk about the, um, the people on the loop track. Right, and here's something that I don't think the, um, the standard expected value framework takes into, ac into account, and which it should take into account, is that the probability with which your action harms somebody can be relevant to the moral evaluation of that harming. And what we're really trying to justify when we're in this sort of situation where you're harming some to save others, unless, I mean, for utilitarians, you just tot up the well-being or what have you. But for deontological theorists, what you're trying to justify is overriding the right of the person who's on the loop track. So what you're trying to justify is, is that wrong? 
okay, and the, the wrong that you do to the person whose right that you're going to violate. And that wrong has, um, can, can vary according to different sort of features of the case. So if the person who you um, are going to harm is somewhat responsible for this situation coming about, then harming them would be less wrongful. Um, if you yourself are responsible for them being in this position, it might be more wrongful. There's all sorts of ways in which rights violations can be more or less wrongful than one another. Um, and I think that this is one... So the, the question, the probabilities come into play in determining that. Okay, so here's the, the first line is the risky-harm line. So this, uh, I've got a, another paper on this, and I'll argue for it at length. So here I'm just going to give you the, the headlines. Um, I think that when you act in a way that ends up harming a non-liable person, the wrongfulness of your action is in part a function of the probability that your action would harm a non-liable person. So when it was more likely that your action would harm a non-liable person, you do them more wrong by harming them than when it was less likely. Uh, a way to sort of think about this is there's a familiar distinction between intended and foreseen violations of rights, um, and I'm proposing a distinction between more foreseeable and less foreseeable violations of rights. So probably none of them, if they're merely foreseen rather than intended, then they're not as wrongful as intended violations of rights. Um, but when they're more foreseeable, they're more, they're more wrongful than when they're less foreseeable. Um, and so the idea is that this too would have to be factored in. Uh, also, the argument for this view, by the way, so I've got an intuitive case, but I won't appeal to that. The main argument for this view is that when you act with a higher probability that your action will harm a non-liable person, what you're doing is you're effectively giving their interests and their standing less weight in your considerations than you otherwise ought to. So it's a form of disrespect to act in a way that um, is more risky and more reckless with regard to that person. That's one of the arguments. I've got another account of um, the importance of respecting other people's rights in a way that is modally robust. So I will just give you quickly the example for that. Um, okay, so suppose that I wire up a... Uh, I mean, the croupier has wired up a roulette wheel so that if the ball lands in certain of the slots, it will detonate a bomb that will kill Julian. In the first case, the croupier has wired it up so that if the ball lands in, on um, black, it will detonate the bomb that will kill Julian. In the second case, he's wired it up so that if the ball lands on two, it will detonate the bomb. Now I, just because I want to, not because I want to see Julian dead, but just because I want to win some money, I initiate the game and I place a bet um, and the ball goes around and it lands on black two in both cases. Now I think that I've wronged Julian more egregiously or more seriously in the case where the probability that my initiating that game would lead to Julian's being harmed was greater. So I think in the, in the black case it's, one, it's 18 over 37. Um, we're assuming a fair wheel and fair uh, ball and all that. Uh, and in the two cases it's 1 over 37. Uh, and I think that I've, I've wronged him more egregiously in the case where I've bet and the ball and the bomb was wired to black. And I think this is because respecting one another's rights isn't only, or the respect we show for one another's rights isn't only a function of the things that we do to one another as things actually turn out. It's also a function of things that would happen in relevant nearby possible worlds. Right? And this is a familiar feature of other types of relationships that we have, like friendships, for example, have these modal properties built into them. They're modally demanding in this way. And I think respecting one another's rights is the same sort of thing. Um, so I think that in the case where there are so many other ways in which this could have come about that the bomb would have detonated, um, what I've done is I've wronged him more, seri more egregiously. So the headline or the upshot of this is that when you push the lever 
and you create this 0.5 probability that an inno innocent person gets killed, um, and the trolley goes around the loop track and kills that innocent person, the wrong that that person suffers at your hands is not identical to the wrong that someone suffers when you direct divert a trolley towards them with a certainty that it will kill them. Um, it's somewhat less. And again, this is going to have to be, we have to, there'll be a challenge to work out exactly what this function would be. Um, I don't think it's going to be, um, going to make a huge difference, but it's going to make some difference. It's going to mean that it's somewhat less wrongful than merely causing another, than causing another person's death with the certainty that your action would kill them. And this then would mean that we have to factor that into the expected value calculation. So it's going to mean that some, some discount is going to be applied to the lives of the people on the loop track and their claim, well, rather their claim against you that they would, that you're violating. So that's going to be something that goes in and means that, you know, it's, it's just not true that um, one expected death is the same as one certain death because an expected death that is a compound of, um, you know, a very, very likely death and a very, very unlikely one would, might be more wrongful than one that's a compound of two deaths that are both equally likely. Right, so there's different ways you can come about, you can come about the same probabilities and they can affect the value in different ways. Um, so that's the risky harm part. Then there's the harmless risks part. And this is another thing that is excluded from the original expected value calculation. Now, we typically think that um, when you impose risks on other people, even if those risks don't eventuate in harm, they can, they're still morally relevant. So if someone speeds through the uh, residential area, even if he doesn't kill anybody or doesn't um, run over anybody, we still have a claim against him. He's still done something wrong, and he's still wronged us in particular. Um, and so just consider that even if the trolley goes down stop the first time, you still subjected the person on loop to this 0.5 risk of being killed. And ordinarily, that's a very serious thing and something that we need to take into account. Um, but what's more, you've actually subjected the person who would be on loop at the second iteration to a 0.25 risk and a subsequent person to a 1 over 8 risk and so on uh, all the way through. So you've subjected all of these people to a risk, and even if you get lucky they've still been subject to that risk, and that's something that should be relevant to the evaluation of your action. Now again, exactly what numbers we should assign to these different values and these different um, wrongs, um, I'm not sure. And again, I think that probably they're not going to be very, very weighty. Um, but still, if you recall the, the original formulation of the problem, it was very, very finely balanced. It was the expected value of pulling the lever every time was exactly one. We've now had a number of considerations which changed that calculation, and I, I did this stuff in the. Um, I, I won't go through the numbers or stuff. I tried to model this um, when I was writing this out, and you've got we've already got one function that sort of diminishes the contributing weight of the of the reasons that we have to save the people at the end of the line. We've got another function now that is um, affecting the degree of wrong that is suffered by the people on loop when they're killed, but also an additional element which can, takes into account the fact that they're subjected to risks even when the trolley goes down the stop track. Um, so, so much for the victims and the beneficiaries. Um, next, I'll talk quickly about the agent, the person who's carrying out the action. So, a thought that you might have had already is this. Once you've pulled the lever the first time, you've inserted yourself into the causal chain, which, if you subsequently don't pull the lever will lead to the people at the end of the track being killed. Um, you've done so in a way that is morally responsible in the sense that you knew all the relevant probabilities, you knew what was at stake, 
and you chose to do it on the basis of reasons that you affirmed. Now, ordinarily, in other contexts, when you are morally responsible for a causal contribution to some bad outcome, the reasons that you have to avert that bad outcome are greater than they would otherwise be. Right, that's just a sort of a fairly basic principle that once you've contributed to a bad outcome, you have a stronger reason to avert it than others might have. Now, obviously, in this case, causing a causal contribution is a bit of a stretch, right? Because they would have died anyway. Um, your causal contribution doesn't change how things would turn out from their perspective. It makes them better off, in fact, gives them some ex ante chance of surviving. And yet, there are plenty of other cases where making a causal contribution that is either negligible or is to an overdetermined bad still means that we do have some greater responsibility to avert that bad. Um, so just think of cases like climate change or think of Derek Parfitt's harmless torturers case. Um, if you want to think up, though, it's easy to come up with situations where we all together do something that is overdetermined so that any one of us individually doesn't make any difference to whether or not that bad outcome comes about. And yet we still think that in virtue of our being morally responsible for doing this, that we um, are going to, uh, we have some greater responsibility to avert that bad outcome than we otherwise would. Now, I don't think that I buy this idea. Um, I think that it's, a, it's an interesting feature of the case, but I think that there's probably a way to push back against it um, and to say that you're not, you don't have additional reasons to save the people at the end of the line just in virtue of inserting yourself into the causal chain. I think probably the reason is that, uh, well, it's going to be one of two reasons. So one possibility is that um, if what you're doing, I mean, this is kind of circular, but if what you're doing were all things considered justified, if it's a justified causal contribution for which you're responsible, then you might think that that sort of thing can't, can't create uh, additional responsibilities to avert the bad outcome. So when you're, when you're responsible for some bad outcome, but when your responsibility is for an action that was morally justified, we might think that you don't have the, any additional duties regarding that bad outcome. Another possibility is that from the perspective of the people at the end of the line, obviously they really want you to pull the lever. Right? That you're pulling the lever gives them at least a 50% chance, I mean, more than a 50% chance, it gives them, gives them at least a 50% chance of surviving, um, at least just on the first pull. So they're obviously going to want you to make that first pull. Um, and for them to subsequently say, well, now you've done it, you kind of have stronger reasons to help us and otherwise would be um, kind of overreaching. Not to say that doesn't arise in other cases. I mean, if you, you, know, if you start um, resuscitating somebody, who's, or resuscitating somebody who's, who's dying, then having started it, they may have an additional claim on you based on a legitimate expectation. Um, but I suspect that wouldn't apply here. Um, so I think that we, can sort of, we don't need to worry too much about the fact that you're causally inserted into the causal chain. Now... The next sort of variation that we can consider is if you suppose that the person who is pulling the lever is changed at each iteration. So I pull the lever the first time, but it's going to be a different person who's going to pull it each subsequent time. And this raises interesting questions about how we should factor in our future voluntary choices into the decisions that we make now. So if I know that the person who's going to pull the lever at T3 um, is an idiot who won't do the thing that's morally justified, um, he'll just do whatever, whatever. You, won't, you won't even pay attention then clearly I should factor that into my account of what I ought to do now. So if my pulling the lever um, now, the permissibility of my pulling the lever now were conditioned on what the person at T3 does, and we can change the numbers so that that's the case. If it were conditioned on what the person at T3 does, then my knowing that this other person would act wrongly would clearly be something I should take as parametric in determining which option I should choose. 
when it's me who pulls the lever every time, we might think that there are problems with treating ourselves in that sort of external way. That what you ought to do is just do the right thing at each time and you shouldn't just sort of build your future predictable wrongdoing into, um, into your calculations of the expected value of doing what you do now. Now obviously lots of people think that you should treat those two cases identically. Um, but they at least raise important issues, I think. Okay, the last sort of agency thing that I want to think about um, is, has to do with the setting up of the problem. Okay, so I, I said it was set up by a demon or a villain. Um, and some people might think, and this is a kind of broadly deontological thing to think, some people might think that that makes all the difference. That really once, um, you know, he's the guy who's responsible for all these deaths. All you're doing is kind of redistributing the risks that he has created. He's made all of these people um, subject to risk. And you don't need to worry so much about the sort of the application of these deontological principles to you because you're really just trying to make things better as far as him, as far as his decision goes. So that makes it into a case sort of like Jim and the Indians, right? Um, where the idea is that um, they're gonna, the general is going to kill 20 of these people unless you kill one of them. And he's exposed them all to risk, so it seems okay for you to just kill the one person because otherwise he's going to kill him and he's going to kill all the other people. So the problem and the fault and all of that lies with the villain rather than with you. Um, so I don't think, I mean, it's very hard to conceive of the case um, without having somebody set it up. It's not exactly easy to conceive of the case with, with somebody setting it up. Um, but I don't think it would make a difference to the sort of reasons that I've been considering. Um, if it were just you know, something that happened to have sprung up out of nowhere or that had no, no particular villain behind it. Um, so I don't think that does make all the difference. Um, and I think that you can't just shift, shift to this idea that what you're doing is just redistributing risk that someone else has created. Um, because you're still exposing some people to risk who otherwise wouldn't have been. You're still sacrificing the people who are going to go on the loop track for the sake of the people on the, on the continued track. And that remains... Um, something that is uh, morally problematic, even if somebody else is responsible for um, setting the problem in the first place. So overall, I think that the agent side of things um, doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I'm sort of open to um, contradiction on that, but the considerations that I think kind of play into the expected values don't, I think, have that much to do with whether it's the same person pulling the lever each time or whether it's been set up by a villain or by some sort of other process. Okay, last thing before I conclude um, that I want to talk about is how we think about uh, responsibility and, and excuse in the context of this example. So one approach that deontologists sometimes take to these sort of cases is to say, look, you really can't know what you ought to do. Um, you just try and do your best and then if things go badly then you might be excused for that. We might not hold you responsible or will hold you responsible if you reason in a defective way or if you um, demonstrate bad character in your choice. Um, but there's really no answer as to what you ought to do. Now, I think that's a sort of troubling kind of defeatism. I want to be able to give action-guiding advice even in abstruse cases like this. Um, but I think it raises other interesting questions. So one of the ways that people typically think about the subjective ought or the epistemic ought in the literature that I work on most is they think of it as being just a um, kind of equivalent to um, excuse. So when you're justified given your epistemic position, that's just the same as saying, it's describing the same facts as say that you'll be excused for taking a particular action. 
Say you acted on the basis of reasonable beliefs or you did the thing that was most likely to be objectively right. It's just like saying that you're excused and the same sort of facts underpin excuse. And it seems to me that this expected value approach isn't exactly amenable to that, certainly as long as we think of excuse as a defeater for responsibility. Because when you pull the lever the first time and it goes down the loop track and kills someone, you pull it the second time, it goes down the loop track and kills someone, um, you can't deny that you're responsible for the outcome that comes about because you, you knew what the probabilities were. This isn't a case where things just go completely, are completely unpredictable. We've stipulated that the probabilities are the same each time, you know what they are, um, and you act on the basis of the reasons in front of you to achieve the outcome that you think most desirable. So it doesn't seem right to describe you as being excused um, for, on that particular grounds, and certainly not that you should be um, considered not responsible for the outcome. So I think that suggests that there's some interesting um, kind of pull away from the kind of the conflation of, ex of um, the epistemic court and the idea of excuse. Um, which would have significant implications in some areas. I mean, if what you really ought to do under conditions of uncertainty is to act on the basis of a principle like maximise expected objective value, then somebody who is justified in that condition, who's kind of epistemically justified or justified relative to the epistemic ought, um, is justified in a very morally important sense. And we can't just say, well, you know, they've done the objectively wrong thing, but they were excused for doing so. So they're not really on a par with people who have done the objectively wrong thing, but... Uh, objectively right thing. It seems like this is a, a much, makes it a much stronger and more important type of ought than the version which just conflates it with excuse. Okay, so I'm going to just sort of summarise. Um, I think the main idea that I've been trying to sort of pull out is that when you consider a problem like this, you can see how the, the starting position, where we just look at the expected value of these deaths without considering any of these other details and without considering the identity of the people who bear these costs or anything like that. That starting position is inadequate that if we want to accommodate a sort of richer um, non-consequentialist approach to ethics, we need to sort of think about the value function and think about the different ways in which changing the protagonists around and um, altering the people who are otherwise going to get harmed alters the values that are at play. Uh, and it's possible that, that... So that then means that um, the decision that you face or the, the option set that you face at T1 and that, the one that you face at T2 and T3 and T4, they're not identical. Uh, they are foreseeable. So you can see when you pull the lever, the f you can foresee when you pull the lever the first time what the subsequent disvalues are going to be, how they're going to change. All of the stuff that I've suggested just involves applying certain functions, certain discounts and additional weighting functions to the values of these deaths as you go along and you can see those from the outset. Um, but it does mean that the sort of simple approach of just thinking about this in terms of expected deaths um, isn't going to be adequate. And I think that's an important, it's not so much a result as an important hypothesis and something that's really worth exploring. Um, there are obviously objections that you can raise to these sorts of cases. Um, you know, we do tend to be very bad at thinking about probabilities, so maybe that's the, the problem here. We tend to be very bad at thinking about sort of infinite series and these sorts of cases, so maybe our intuitions are just kind of a muck. And economists do treat sunk costs and the, the way in which people um, give weight in their reasoning to sunk costs, they treat that as a sort of paradigmatic case of, rationality, of irrationality. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not... Obviously, people are going to have different intuitions. Um, I think that philosophy is much more interesting if we try to um, see what sort of legs are sort of plausible common sense intuitions are going to have and try and find justifications for them and see and try and model how that sort of view would work out. 
Um, but I can obviously concede that if you don't share the intuitions and if you just think, go for it, keep pulling the lever each time, um, then there's not a huge amount that I can say to convince you. I think the main thing probably, though, is just this idea about redistributing risk and it being unfair to shift all of the burden onto the guys on loop um, in a continuous, just continuing way um, in order to save a finite number of people um, on, the, on the other track. So I think with that, I'll stop um, and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much.